Hi, it's good to hear were your voice. you How are one you? of those people that had to sit behind the desk in the hearing room for 47 I hours? I was, but I made sure that I wasn't right behind it because I didn't want my your coffee drinking scarf and earmuff like <laughs> headphones in that freezing room to be on TV. I think I was probably in some shots, but not like, you know, the shot. Not the shot. Thank God. But she's now famous for drinking coffee. That could it's be you. True. You could be a meme. It's politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway. After two long weeks with many, many hours of public testimony in the impeachment inquiry, where else would we begin? Don't worry, though. We'll spare you the fancy radio montage of highlights, even though it would be pretty solid, because we know you've probably heard a lot of it by now. Instead, let's get to the important takeaways from someone who's been covering every minute of this process. Nick Fandos is a congressional reporter for The New York Times. Over the last two weeks, what we basically saw was a dozen diplomats, White House officials, State Department and Defense Department officials come forward and for the most part tell a pretty consistent story about how President Trump, working with Rudy Giuliani, his personal lawyer, and then certain officials in his government, um, went about uh, basically pressuring Ukraine to conduct certain politically sensitive investigations that would benefit the president um, in the domestic political sense that were not traditional foreign policy. Um, And so we had some of the key figures involved coming forward and talking about how the president directed them to work with Rudy Giuliani. And over the course of several months, um, they kind of went around or replaced the traditional channels of foreign policy, what we call the interagency process, all the kind of bureaucratic functions of the government, and uh, tried to extract these investigations, one into Joe Biden and his son Hunter, one into an unproven theory about how Ukraine, not Russia, interfered in the 2016 election. And they used, uh, we learned a a White House meeting that Ukraine's new president badly wanted as leverage at first. Um, One of the the leading diplomats involved, Gordon Sondland, testified this week that in his mind there was clearly leverage. There was, as he said, a quid pro quo where Ukraine would not get that meeting until it agreed to publicly announce these investigations. And later, uh, other officials involved Um, came to believe that President Trump was also withholding almost $400 million in security aid for Ukraine for its conflict with Russian-backed separatists uh, in its own country as another point of leverage for those same investigations. Um, In that case, none of the witnesses could present direct evidence that that was happening, but they said the pattern was clear. And so after these two weeks, um, I think we were left with much of the story as it's it had been being told by Democrats for a couple of months now, having been substantiated, but we're still lacking key witnesses uh, who were part of the events, who may be able to pin it down more precisely. And there's still a big question uh, about what President Trump personally directed and, and kind of personally did versus uh, other officials around him who were interpreting his directions and those of his personal lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, to execute this kind of pressure campaign. 
Right. That was the the Republican defense throughout these hearings was nobody can say they heard directly from the president of the United States to pressure Ukraine to investigate the Bidens to hold up this money. But there are some people theoretically who could answer these questions, right? John Bolton, Mike Pompeo, Mick Mulvaney. And yet we're not going to hear from them, right? That's right. Um, at least as of right now, it, there are no more public hearings scheduled in the Intelligence Committee. Uh, they have made a run at trying to get some of these witnesses to come and testify, and they have not agreed to do so. Now, there's some possibility that the political pressure created by this week or some other factor may lead them to have a change of heart. But right now, at least, it looks as if Democrats are going to move forward with this case without these folks. They think that it's more important to move expeditiously um, than to let somebody like John Bolton or Mick Mulvaney just tie them up in court fights for months on end. But at the same time, as you said, the case was laid out and it didn't seem to move anyone, at least on the committees. Republicans completely united, including some of those Republicans who folks were thinking might break, somebody like Congressman Will Hurd, who sits in a pretty Democratic district and is retiring, a congressman from Texas, said, I haven't seen enough here to believe that we should impeach this president. Right. I think Republicans, you know, there was no single Republican defense of President Trump. There were uh, maybe a dozen different Republican defenses. And some work for some lawmakers and some don't work for others. Um, But I think the moment you're pointing to which uh, came near the end of the last hearing of the week was a pretty important one because Will Hurd has been looked to as a kind of barometer of, of are there Republicans who are either retiring as he is or moderate as he is who will look at this set of facts and feel, you know, troubled enough by them that they'll put aside their concerns or loyalty to, to President Trump to take some action on it. And what Hurd said is uh, basically, yes, th- these facts are bad. Foreign policy was bungled, and the interests of the United States and Ukraine were badly damaged in this situation. He criticized President Trump uh, for the phone call that he had with Ukraine's leader and for blessing parts of this operation. But he said at the end of the day, there's too many people we haven't heard from, um, and impeachment has to be a clear, grave, and not disprovable kind of offense. And uh, right now, we don't have that. Um, And so I think there were a lot of Democrats who by the end of the hearings were not expecting uh, a flip from Heard or, or others, but this seemed to foreclose that possibility, mm-hmm. at least barring new evidence or testimony coming forward. So with the public testimony piece, now it looks like that's complete. The Intelligence Committee, they write up a report, they send it to the Judiciary Committee, and it's Judiciary that writes up articles of impeachment. What do we know about this process and what could be included or maybe not included in those articles? It's a great question. And in some ways, it's going to be the culmination Mm -hmm. of a year of debate among Democrats. Um, You know, at one end, I think there'll be some members of the Democratic caucus that are advocating for throwing everything in the kitchen sink into these impeachment articles. And by that, I mean, not just this Ukraine situation and the possibility that the president obstructed Congress and its inquiry, 
which they view as impeachable, but also, um, you know, his willingness to welcome help from Russia during the 2016 campaign, a possible obstruction of justice that was outlined uh, in the Mueller report, which now seems like a distant memory. you know, uh, potentially even of what they see as violations of the Constitution's emoluments clause um, against profiting basically on government business. And at the other end of the spectrum, I think there are those, and my best guess is that this crowd will probably win out, uh, who want to keep this case very narrow um, around Ukraine. Uh, they've spent all this, you know, the last two two months building this case in the public eye about why what happened in Ukraine is more urgent and pressing and needs to be addressed. Um, and so the Judiciary Committee, as you say, I think will be a venue for these differences to be sorted out. And sorting them out will look like different articles of impeachment on different topics, and there'll be debates, and potentially they could come up for a vote. You know, my best guess is that we'll see that process begin to play out in the next few weeks. Is this going to be a process that plays out, Nick, behind closed doors, or are we going to see this play out publicly? So at first, I think what you will have is the the Judiciary Committee and the chairman and his staff, um, and then individual lawmakers drafting articles of impeachment themselves, just kind of working through a rough draft process uh, behind closed doors. But then eventually, the Judiciary Committee will hold open sessions where Mm -hmm. these articles are edited, amended, debated, and ultimately voted on. And the committee will have to vote whether or not to recommend uh, these whatever articles of impeachment they settle on to the full House of Representatives. Let's take us even a step further to what else may be happening in the House going forward for these next few months and even going into 2020. One of the arguments that Republicans have been making as well, especially against some of these vulnerable Democratic freshmen, some of them Uh, in districts that Trump carried, is that this vote of impeachment is going to be problematic for them, not because simply because maybe Trump is popular in the district or won their district, but because they will not be able to go home and tell voters that they've actually accomplished anything. I think that Democratic leaders are very mindful of the exact political problem that you're talking about. And so though Speaker Pelosi this week um, signaled that there is likely not to be a vote on this trade deal this year, the Democrats are still negotiating with the White House on a kind of legislative package which would put it into place. I think that Democratic leadership is, is very committed to ensuring that there is a vote on that trade deal in particular. They want members to be able to go home and say, look, I worked with the president on this this thing, this issue that is important to my district for X and Y and Z reasons. And yes, we may have also impeached the president and upheld review our constitutional duty to do so. I didn't go to Congress to try and do that, but I did go to Congress to address these problems mm-hmm. and I voted on this. And by the way, you know, a prescription drug bill, which Democrats plan to put on the floor in the coming months, an infrastructure bill, they obviously have legislation that they've already passed around gun safety and, and health care costs and other things like that, which don't stand much of a chance of passing the Senate. But uh, Democrats can say, um, hey, we tried on these things and we accomplished this trade deal. We worked with the president to, to put it into place. One thing that was brought up in terms of the Senate was Senator Lindsey Graham's decision to open an investigation 
into Hunter Biden and Burisma. Do you have any idea what this would look like? It raised two immediate questions to me. One, we'd been hearing, those of us on Capitol Hill had been hearing Lindsey Graham for weeks talk about how his committee was not the proper jurisdiction for an investigation like this. And so it was something of a of a turnabout that leads you to wonder whether it isn't just the only thing that's changed is politics, you know, that the case against the president in the House has gotten more dramatic. So you need to investigate this thing that the president once investigated, the Biden's Ukrainian uh, energy company, because the Democrats aren't going to do it. And it, it, it basically helps kind of diffuse the case or muddy the waters a little bit. And in that sense, it helps the president's defense against impeachment. Um, but the other thing that that came to my mind is if if the State Department, who Senator Graham is asking to turn over these records, complies, they're going to be in a a pretty interesting situation to try and explain themselves. They have you know defied a subpoena from the House Intelligence Committee for a whole trove of records now um, that these hearings made clear would be very helpful or clarifying to the Democratic case. And they've said, we're not going to hand them over. So if all of a sudden we see them starting to comply uh, with an investigation that is more politically favorable or aligned with the president, I think that will also change the dynamic on Capitol Hill and will you know, further enrage Democrats. It may give them more leverage to get what they want, um, or it will make at least the Trump administration's stonewalling of the impeachment inquiry look like a more um, serious offense than perhaps it has in the past. Thank you, Nick Fandos. This was really helpful. I was so glad to do it. Thanks for having me, Amy. Not that long ago, state government was seen as one of the last places for functional governing. In his 2000 campaign for president, then-Texas Governor George W. Bush leaned into the fact that he had worked closely and collaboratively with a Democratic-controlled legislature. I want to remind the folks of this state I've got a positive record as the governor of the state of Texas, that I'm a uniter, not a divider, and I intend to lead our country to a better day. Thank you very much, and I'm asking for your vote. At the same time that bipartisanship in the legislatures has declined, the momentum in pursuit of the governor's mansion has become more pronounced. You had a whole country watching governor's races in the midterm with results that were surprising to many. Folks are gathered here uh, really waiting for that to happen, hoping that she will come to the podium and that they will soon be able to address her, not as Senator Kelly, but Governor-elect Kelly. The Republican Larry Hogan was poised to be the first Republican governor to win re-election since 1954, and he did, despite Maryland's traditional lean toward Democrats. The race for Wisconsin governor came down to just more than one percentage point. Democrat Tony Evers defeated incumbent Governor Scott Walker with 50% of the vote. And this month, Democrats John Bell Edwards in Louisiana and Andy Bashir in Kentucky won governor's races in typically red states, even as the president was there campaigning against them. It's also coming at a time when 2020 Democratic candidates for president are debating which approach they should take to governing. Some, like former Vice President Joe Biden, argue that voters want to return to practical, pragmatic-style governing. Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders are less interested in bringing Republican legislators to the table than they are in bringing a grassroots revolution to Washington. And within the Democratic Party, there's also a debate about whether, if Democrats win the Senate, they should go ahead and do away with the filibuster, thereby ensuring that any and all legislating can be done with a simple majority. No bipartisan deal-making needed. 
This week, I wanted to take a look at what this divide looks like at the state level, in a state that's also a key 2020 battleground, Wisconsin. It has a Republican legislature, but in 2018, Democrat Tony Evers narrowly defeated Republican Governor Scott Walker. I was able to talk to Democrat Janet Bewley, a state senator from Wisconsin and the assistant minority leader, to figure it out. She represents a purple district in a purple state and sits in a district that Trump carried by four points. Far northern Wisconsin, uh, right on the shores of Lake Superior. We reached out to a number of Republicans in the Wisconsin legislature, too, for this episode, but they declined to join us. I would say that this saga started in 2010 when the Republicans completely swept. And immediately after that, Scott Walker did his famous Act 10, which took away the ability of state employees to unionize. And that sort of set the stage for eight years of complete, complete Republican control. So when Governor Tony Evers was elected, we were dealing with a legislature, a Republican legislature, that was very used to getting its way. So I believe that it knew it could set the stage, if you will, for the governor's tenure by undermining him with their lame duck legislation. And it was intentional. It was specifically meant, number one, to send a message and that they are going to use everything that they possibly could and stretch every power that they may have as members of the legislature of that branch of government to make sure that the governor gets nothing done. But the facts are that with divided government, we have the ability of the governor to veto bills. That's the ace in our pocket. It means that the Republicans have to do a job where they legitimately and and truly share their power with Democrats. So has something passed that is significant that voters in your district would say, okay, you know, it's divided government. It can look a little bit ugly and a little bare knuckled, but, you know, at the end of the day, they're getting some stuff done. So we can say that we're signing bills. I'm going to two bill signings today. They're not the mainstay issues of either party. Neither party can claim uh, huge wins in the very, very important policy issues that they would like to see enacted. So we aren't able to make the big, big differences in health care, in education, in homelessness, in drug addiction. In our criminal justice system, there are big policy issues that we believe could be addressed right now, and they're not getting to the floor. Is that frustrating to say, I can't go out there and tell people what I've done? I could just go out there and say, well, this is what Republicans are doing to stop us from getting things done? That's where we try as Democrats to also use the power of the governor, which is in his appointments to the different agencies of our state. So when it comes to, say, for example, the Department of Natural Resources, which took a huge hit by Governor Walker, both budgetarily and programmatically, we can now say we've hired scientists again. 
because we have a Democratic governor. So that's a win for Democratic policy in our state. We have science. We're allowed to talk about climate change in Wisconsin again. And that's a big deal. So although I can't say I did it, I can say we did it. The governor earlier this year called a special session for a debate over gun legislation, and that went nowhere. Well, 30 seconds in the Senate and 15 seconds in the Assembly, gavel in, gavel out. That is indicative of the kind of message that the majority wants to send, which is we are in control of the legislature. And if we don't want to take it, we're not going to. It's very unfortunate because it is one of those issues that we know there is common ground. We know that there are some Republicans who have said, hmm, background checks? Yeah, yeah, we should talk about that. They didn't want to let Democrats have a victory. That was more important than getting a bipartisan bill passed. Much more, much more important. And I think that they looked at the issues, where do we have to look like we're cooperative? And that that one, of course, is on heroin and the prescription drug addiction problem. The kinds of things they're doing in in the area of uh, mental illness and addiction are pretty trifling. They don't have a big budgetary impact. They're policy issues that are often unfunded mandates in schools. So their gestures at the issues that are of importance, they will not deal with the hot-button issues that might make it look like they are working with the Democrats on the important high-stakes issues. What did you hear from your constituents as you went door-to-door and talked to them about the presidential election? I think that one of the most significant things that people consistently say are things like, why can't we get along? Why can't we have government where people from both sides of the aisle really can get things done? And there were references to the rhetoric, the kind of tolerance that the White House has for very, very harsh criticism, ad hominems, the kinds of remarks that are uncharacteristic of people who proudly serve in government, and the fact that so many things are reduced to personal attacks and People don't like that. Um, I think, I think in general, people want to be kind to each other. State Senator Janet Bewley, thank you so much for taking the time with me. It has been my pleasure. I sat down with Alan Greenblatt politics writer at Governing, to talk about the trends he's noticed in state legislatures, governor's races, and how it's all tied to trends in national politics. You know, we have a very divided country right now, as we all know. And in Washington, that is reflected by division, with the Democratic House and Republican Senate not agreeing on any legislation to speak of, let alone sending it to the president. But states have divided themselves. So in other words, instead of each state being divided, States are controlled by one party or the other. You have pretty much total dominance of a lot of states. So 
rather than laboratories of democracy, we have red labs in blue labs. We have Texas and Tennessee and Ohio being Republican-dominated and California and Colorado and Illinois all being dominated by Democrats. And they are putting forward a lot of legislation. A lot of laws are being passed in those states. And of course, the Republican states are going one way on taxes and abortion and and gun control. And the Democratic states are going the opposite way. But a lot is happening at the state level. But it's a product of unified control, not divided control. Let's look at a couple of those states that, that do have divided control. And this is the other thing that interested me, Alan, was that states like Massachusetts and Maryland, deep blue states, have Republican governors, and these Republican governors are two of the most popular governors in the entire country. Compare that with what's happening, say, in Michigan, which is a purple state, but you have a Republican legislature and a Democratic governor where they seem to be fighting constantly. Wisconsin's the same, newly elected Democratic governor, Republican legislature, constantly fighting. Why does it seem like one way is working and the other places it's not? So you, you frame that as the Republican governors are working well with Democratic legislatures, the Democratic governors are not working with Republicans. And that's not entirely true. Mm. There are examples. The Republican governors from Clinton states or blue states are all very popular. Maryland, Massachusetts, Vermont, and New Hampshire, they're among the most popular governors in the country. And they are all seen as moderate. They're, they're, they're all skeptical of, of President Trump to some degree or another. And what they've done is learn to live with the Democratic legislature. They recognize the big majorities and, and, they, and they get along in terms of running the state and you know f- passing budgets and basic things like that while finding occasional areas where they can break. So, you know, Charlie Baker, Massachusetts, twice this year vetoed uh, bills that would have made it easier for public employees to unionize. So they, they satisfy the Republican constituencies who recognize it's a Democratic environment. And and some Democratic voters, you know, the New England states have a tradition of doing this, having Democratic legislatures and Republican governors, with a, with governor acting as a little bit of a break on the legislature and the one party dominance. People like that. People like governors who are not from the dominant party who come across as moderate. And there's some examples of this uh, among the Democratic governors with Republican legislatures. But there's there's a lot of um, you know, in Kansas, for example, the new Democratic governor, Laura Kelly, she could not convince the legislature to, to do a Medicaid expansion. Uh, she vetoed a couple of uh, tax cuts. But they worked together on things like education funding and dealing with some child welfare issues that were big in that state. And even in Michigan, uh, there was a criminal justice reform package that had been sort of years in the making, but they got it done under this Democratic governor, Republican legislature. But they haven't been able to see eye to eye on on the budgets. And, you know, in Wisconsin, they're they're barely speaking to each other, uh, the governor and the legislative leaders. So, you know, if the legislators and the governor are of different party, you're going to expect some conflict. Sometimes that ends up in compromise and sometimes that just ends up with them totally at loggerheads. What do you think the experience of what we're seeing at the state legislative level, at the governor executive level, tells us, if anything, about 2020. When you hear a Joe Biden or a Pete Buttigieg talk about working with Republicans, I don't know if they th- are 
thinking that will actually happen, that they will actually calm the fever in Washington. I think really what they're talking to is voters who wish that were true, uh, voters who want to see comedy and cooperation, or who may be Republicans themselves who are wary about voting for Trump a second time. They want to be spoken to. They don't want to be shoved aside by progressives saying only one type of voter is welcome in the new Democratic Party. I think voters are smart enough to understand that, look, we live in really polarized times, and this is not... Intellectually, we understand that getting big bipartisan things done is probably not possible, but we at least would like to believe that if we send someone to Washington who is open to it, that's better than sending someone to Washington who says, I'm never even going to reach my hand out to the other side. Right. I mean, so much of our politics now is driven by negative feelings that the other side is crazy or dangerous or something like that. And I think people do want to return to the idea that somehow we can find common ground. Uh, and maybe it is wishful thinking because often you hear voters say, why can't they do the sensible thing and get something done? But usually what they mean is the sensible thing that I want. <laughs> right. they, they're not thinking that people who – if they're in a very red area, they're not thinking – that the people in the college town want something totally different. Is there any state that stands out to you as sort of the model for how bad things are and one that stands out for how how good things are? Yeah, North Carolina and Wisconsin right now have the most contentious relationships between the governor and the legislature. You know, in North Carolina, the governor vetoed the state budget because he wanted it to include an expansion of Medicaid and the Republican legislature was not going to go along with that. And the the state house overrode his veto on September 11th, a day when uh, most of the Democrats were not in the chamber. Uh, and so they snuck it through. Uh, and then they, they, they were unable to do that in the Senate. The Democrats just camped out in the chamber so that the Republicans would not be able to hold a vote without them without them present. So they were able to uphold the governor's veto. I mean, that's, that's, it's, it's hard to convey how unusual it is that the, there's that, that level of distrust that they, they don't know when a floor vote is going to come up and they, they just don't trust the, the other party. And, you know, in Wisconsin, the state Senate fired the agriculture secretary uh, and the governor spoke to state workers. Governor Tony Evers, the Democrat, and he, he called them bastards and called them amoral and stupid. And he tried to walk back the bastards comment and saying it was, you know, just an expression, don't let the bastards get you down. But, you know, things are things are at a at a low point when when, you know, there, there's that level of name calling in a at least semi public forum. So and in terms of places that are working well, it's hard right now just in terms of this context of is there a place where partisan divisions are being overcome? I'd say Colorado, three or four years ago, there was divided government and they sort of learned to live with each other. They accepted the reality that this is the hand that voters dealt and they were able to make some compromise deals. And we see it to some extent in, you know, even a state like Pennsylvania where Tom Wolf is a Democratic governor with a Republican legislature. During his first term, there were there were government shutdowns. They couldn't agree at all. But then he got reelected pretty easily. And, you know, again, they've accepted the reality that that there's just going to be divided government. They're not doing huge things together, but they're 
paying the bills in Maryland as well. There's there's there are areas of disagreement. But yeah, I don't I don't think there's a shining example of of a state where there's divided control, but everybody is singing uh, kumbaya. Alan Greenblatt, this has been really fun. Thank you for taking the time to talk to with me about all of this. Well, thanks for caring about states. On Wednesday night, the Democratic Party held its fifth debate for 10 presidential hopefuls at Tyler Perry Studios in Atlanta, Georgia. Coming just a little over two months before the Iowa caucuses and a month before the final fundraising quarter of the year, it was poised to be a consequential moment in this race. But it lacked the energy of some of the recent debates. For one, it came just a couple of hours after a marathon day of testimony on Capitol Hill in the impeachment trial. The candidates also rarely engaged or challenged each other in ways we'd seen in previous debates. I sat down with two Democratic political strategists to better understand the major takeaways from that night and where the 2020 Democratic fight is headed. Ty Matzdorf is senior vice president for the Messina Group, and Joel Payne is a Democratic analyst and most recently worked on Hillary Clinton's 2016 campaign for president. I started out by asking them for their main takeaways. Joel jumped right in. So, Amy, I imagine you may be a fan of Seinfeld, and and I've been calling this the debate about nothing. The debate this week really was overshadowed by the impeachment hearings in Washington, D.C. And then when we actually got to the debate, I think we noticed less fireworks than we have in the previous debates, more agreement. For the most part, I don't think anything was, was radically changed by what happened at the debate. Ty, what do you think? I would agree with that. It was definitely very much the status quo. So if you went in a front runner, you probably came out a front runner. If you went in sort of on the outside looking in, you're probably still there because Joel's right. There's only so much political oxygen out there. And it was just all sucked up by impeachment. So, you know, these candidates probably could have danced on their head during the debate and it wouldn't have gotten much attention. If you looked the day after the debate, Thursday morning, papers in the four early states, the largest paper in in each state, not a single front page mentioned the debate. It was all impeachment and and local stories. So, you know, if you were trying to make inroads into South Carolina or Nevada, um, I think it was just really, really difficult. So do you think that the reason that folks on the stage maybe pulled their punches or decided not to go in and, and go after, say, one of the front runners was that it just wasn't worth it because it wasn't going to get them much traction? These debates in the past, I think that there's this popular conventional wisdom thought that they are elevators, that they are opportunities for people to really step up. And in this cycle, it really has not been the case. It's really been an eliminator. Um, it, it, it has been something that for a person like Kamala Harris, it really, while it gave her a temporary bump, it actually ended up being kind of the start of a long slide. Um, Joe Biden hasn't been able to really pick up the type of pace that he would want. And and, and I think what we're, what we're seeing are these candidates maybe seeing that the debates aren't really the place that you move. It's the place where you survive, um, so to speak. And, and, and that's the way I, I, I'm certainly looking at it. And I'd imagine some of these camp- campaigns are as well. The question about uh, race came up. And specifically, it started with a question asked to Kamala Harris, which she apparently had criticized Pete Buttigieg for something on on his website, uh, which was a stock photo of an African-American woman who was actually from Kenya. For too long, I think, candidates have taken for granted 
constituencies that have been the backbone of the Democratic Party and have overlooked those constituencies and um, have, you know, they show up when it's, you know, close to election time and show up in a black church um, and, and want to get the vote, but just haven't been there. While I do not have the experience of ever having been discriminated against because of the color of my skin, I do have the experience of sometimes feeling like a stranger in my own country. Buttigieg's challenge at this point seems to be that he has no presence, especially in a state like South Carolina with African-American voters, and that the two African-American candidates are trying to claim a space there. What did you think of that? What you said is correct. It's all math. Um, If you get past Iowa and New Hampshire, you then roll into Nevada, South Carolina, and Super Tuesday, where you have very delegate-rich states like California, Texas, Colorado, North Carolina, that are also incredibly diverse. And if you can't make an inroad into those very crucial voting blocks, it's just very hard to figure out a path to winning the amount of delegates you need to get the nomination. I I think that I saw um, they predict that African-Americans will make up about 25% of the Democratic primary electorate. Um, and so if you, you know, that is a just a huge voting block. And then you also talk about Latinx, API, et cetera. Um, you've got to make inroads into that block. And if you can't show viability in a place like Nevada and a place like South Carolina, how then does that translate into viability in a place like California, Texas, North Carolina, Colorado? Amy, I think I think Ty makes some good points there. What what I'd add to that also is, you know, I think this has been challenging to have this discussion about African-American voters this cycle. Um, I think we're operating on, on a lot of assumptions that I'm not sure still hold true from the past. So I think the assumption is like Pete Buttigieg um, is terrible with African-Americans. He's never going to win over African-Americans support. And I'd be a little bit more bullish on that if I were the Buttigieg campaign, because I don't think he has done anything disqualifying. Right. Like if there was a disqualifying event or a thing that Buttigieg has said or an action that he's taken that has eliminated him from from that population, that'd be one thing. I just think that the African-American voter in general talking as a monolith, which is always dangerous, just does not know Pete Buttigieg. And they tend to trust the Joe Bidens of the world and the Elizabeth Warrens of the world. And so I think that, you know, that that discussion has become a little rankled because if you're Pete Buttigieg and if you win Iowa, New Hampshire, I think African-American voters are going to take a second look at you in South Carolina. Yeah, I think that the, the really the only question that nobody on this show or probably at all can answer is, is the only disqualify as Joel was saying, is there something disqualifying about Pete? The question is, is it the shot clock? Like, is there enough time to become known in a political environment that, you know, you're dealing with impeachment, we're rolling into the holidays, all of those sort of factors of, you know, it just, it it takes time to, to get your name out there. Most people aren't like us. They're not listening. A lot of folks, like they've got normal lives that they're living every day. So really the, the question is just how much runway does he have left? And this could be said for any of the folks who are, who are looking to make moves is, you know, when does that shot clock expire? And Joel's right. Maybe it's a week in between um, Iowa and New Hampshire and Nevada and South Carolina. We don't know. But that is one question that I think that all the campaigns are looking at is they see this ticking clock every day. So, Joel, how dynamic do you think this race really is? 
Or is the assumption that those top four, that we're going to find our nominee out of uh, out of those? So I, I tend to think that the race is very dynamic. And I think this is an interesting point in the conversation to bring up the name Amy Klobuchar. Um, and I've been, you know, the, the Buttigieg boomlet has gotten a lot of attention. And just like the Warren rise and the Biden ups and downs. The candidate I've been watching that has been really just plugging away and starting to break through is Amy Klobuchar. You look at those numbers in Iowa, she's up in the kind of high 1%, which doesn't sound like a lot before a candidate who was at one or, or, you know, close to zero. That's a lot. And Iowa is very interesting because historically, Amy, and you know this, and obviously, Ty, you know it as well. Iowa kind of likes to bring an unexpected guest to dinner um, when it comes to our presidential politics. Look at the the Mike Huckabees and the Rick Santorums and even the John Edwards and, you know, even for that matter, Barack Obama. Iowa likes to introduce people to the country politically that maybe have not been on the national scene before. And so I could see Iowa you know, along with the Buddha judge looking to to allow someone like an Amy Klobuchar to really make a move. She's from that region. She speaks the way that people from there speak. And she's the type of candidate that plays well um, in that retail style politics of Iowa. What do you think, Ty? Because it wasn't that long ago that um, the conventional wisdom among all the Democratic strategists that I was speaking with was that Biden could not win. He was not going to be able to win the nomination. It was going to go to Elizabeth Warren, but Elizabeth Warren can't win the general election. I just want to go back to one other thing. I think it it feels so fluid because if you look at poll after poll after poll, the most important thing for Democratic primary voters is who can beat Donald Trump. And that is completely subjective. So of course you would see a lot of fluidity. Like it's not an issue that is defining like Did you vote for the Iraq war? Did you not vote for the Iraq war? Like that is very concrete. That is very binary. Um, But when the most important issue, I mean, some people might think, hey, you know, somebody like Joe Biden is best to beat Donald Trump. Some people might think like, hey, it's Elizabeth Warren. Or maybe it changes based on who seems strong and who seems weak that day. I mean, they always say that like beauty is in the eye of the beholder, like beating Donald Trump is in the eye of the beholder. So I think that, you know, you will see a probably much more fluid primary process this time than traditionally we have, because it is driven so much by we have to get this existential threat that's in the White House out. So how do you think they're judging this, Ty, this idea of electability? Is it simply we want to stress test these candidates and see how they do under pressure and to imagine what that would look like on the debate stage against Donald Trump, or is it something else? You know, I think that one of the common um, threads that I've seen in sort of quantitative and qualitative research is one, they have to be able to stand up to sort of like the nasty name calling that they know that Donald Trump is going to bring. Um, so they've got to be able to kind of um, seem uh, stout and sturdy enough to withstand that. And two, I think that they have to bring some sort of comfort of normalcy. You know, one of the candidates said this, I can't remember which one, but he's like, if I get elected president, I promise there will go weeks where you don't even think about me. And I think there is a fatigue of sort of all the chaos that comes out of this white house. Can I wake up in the day, watch the today show, go to work, come home, watch the late night shows, and I don't have politics sort of in my face. Um, A a through line that I also see, um, and, and, you know, something that I've actually been talking and writing a lot about is there's this bouncing ball if you kind of go through history of how people like to elect their presidents. And if you follow the disruptor 
And if you follow the change agent, usually that's where you'll find your president. And if you go back between both parties, by the way, 40 years, the only insider you could say we've elected president in the last 40 years is George H.W. Bush. Everybody else has been from outside Washington or at least positioned themselves as outside Washington. And so I think that that's an interesting way to kind of think about this field. Who are the outsiders? Who are the disruptors? Um, history tells us to follow those folks. Um, I also think just kind of looking traditionally at at how you can divide up this Democratic field. Another way I also look at it is, do you think Donald Trump is the symptom or the illness? Do you think that he is the base of all problems that are going on in Washington, D.C.? Or do you think that after Donald Trump leaves, D.C. will still be this swampy mess that has to be cleaned up? And I think where voters take us will will tell us um, what the Democratic progressive agenda will be going forward. As we close this out, I'm wondering what you, I'll start with you, Joel, what you're looking for. We are now, you know, headed into the season, both the holiday season, but this is the sprint season before we get to the first votes being cast in Iowa. What do you think the most important things are for the Democrats right now, if you're a candidate? Amy, I I think what I'm looking at is, you know, who are moving in the places that matter, right? So I think it's right now it's Iowa. There are a lot, there's a lot of polling out there. There's a lot of intelligence um, that we look at. I don't want to say all that matters is Iowa, but if I had to tell someone just to focus on one thing, it's those Iowa polls that kind of demonstrate likability one, because that shows how much propensity you have to grow. And also second choice, um, things like when people are at a caucus and they can't get their first choice, who's their second choice. I'd really kind of dig into those numbers and figure out who's well positioned to maybe make a surprise run there in Iowa. Because again, that Iowa caucus system is an ecosystem unlike any other we have in, in politics. Iowa allows things to happen because of the way that caucus is set up. So um, I, I'd really tell people there are a lot of distractions on the way, but Iowa matters because the entire table resets after Iowa. And what about you, Ty? So there are two kinds of runners in this world. There are sprinters and there are marathoners. And I think a lot of these candidates are trying to sprint to Iowa because if they don't get through, get out of Iowa, their candidacy is done. But you got to remember, as soon as you're done with Iowa and New Hampshire, you pivot to places like Nevada, South Carolina. California, Texas, huge geographies with constituencies that are hard to organize in that take a lot of time and a lot of work. So I'm going to be really curious as who is going to have the long-term infrastructure to compete in those states. Ty, Joel, thank you so much for coming and talking with me. Thank you, Amy. Thank you, Amy. Joel Payne is a Democratic analyst who most recently worked on Hillary Clinton's 2016 campaign. And Ty Matzdorf is the senior vice president for the Messina Group. And here's one more thing for me today. Wednesday night's DNC debate in Atlanta may have, in the words of Joel Payne, been Seinfeldian, but it doesn't mean nothing happened or that we didn't learn anything. The two African-American candidates on stage, Senators Cory Booker and Kamala Harris, put a spotlight on the role black voters will play in the race. Since 1992, no Democratic candidate has won the nomination without winning a majority of the black vote. And many Democrats blame Trump's victory in 2016 on Hillary Clinton's failure to inspire and mobilize voters of color. Harris highlighted the important role that black women play in the Democratic Party and the respect they deserve from a party that often takes them for granted. Not much later, Booker made his case to voters of color, saying, I have a lifetime experience with black voters. I've been one since I was 18. 
Booker did confront Biden directly on the issue of race. By not supporting the legalization of marijuana, Booker argued, Biden was discounting the role that the war on drugs had had on black and brown Americans. The question going forward is whether Booker and Harris will continue pressing the case they made indirectly in the debate. That voting for Biden or Mayor Pete Buttigieg risks alienating voters of color next fall. Biden's success relies on holding on to his current strong level of support among African-American voters in South Carolina and the Super Tuesday states. And Pete Buttigieg can't make it past Iowa and New Hampshire without improving his share of the African-American vote in those later states. That's all for us today. Thanks so much for listening. This is Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway.